we've seen it uh, in the in the major currencies, uh, yen, uh, euro, and sterling. But now, of course, um, uh, in uh, emerging market currencies, and that uh, imported inflation impact has a has a very deleterious effect on the economic pr- uh, prospects. Having said that, I think uh, at least if I speak for India, India is managing quite well. Uh, the RBI have been able to throttle the, the depreciation in the INR. And with the lower oil price, uh, particularly for India, that probably takes a little bit of heat out. Uh, and so the INR has been sort of hovering just under that 80 level against the dollar uh, with a bit of support from the RBI. So in India's case, it's managing quite well, probably one of the better performers in the emerging market currencies currently. Okay, Toby, have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In Asia-Pacific markets, the ASX 200 down in Australia up 0.2%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is up a third of a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to rise 50 points or so at the open in an hour's time. There'll be no money talk on Monday, as it's a public holiday for the Mid-Autumn Festival, but I'll still be here from 6 to 10 in the morning on Radio 3 on Monday for a special holiday programme of music, guests and chat, so please join me for that if you can. In the meantime, have a great holiday weekend. Stay tuned to Back Chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, mainly fine and dry, very hot during the day. Maximum temperature of around 33 degrees. Sunny periods and a few showers on the Mid-Autumn Festival and the following couple of days. There is a very hot weather warning in force, along with a red fire danger warning. It's 29 degrees right now, 46% relative humidity. 8.31, here's Andrew Schwoski with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Queen Elizabeth, Britain's longest reigning monarch and the nation's figurehead for seven decades, has died aged 96. In a statement, Buckingham Palace said she died peacefully at Balmoral, her home in Scotland. Britain's Prime Minister Liz Truss, who was only appointed by the Queen two days before, paid tribute to her. We are all devastated by the news that we have just heard from Balmoral. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Queen Elizabeth's eldest son, Charles, who is 73, has now become King Charles III of the United Kingdom and the head of state of 14 other realms, including Australia, Canada and New Zealand. Locally, a pediatric specialist has repeated calls for parents to get their children fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Mike Kwan, a pediatrics professor at the University of Hong Kong, described the government as having kind and good intentions in extending the vaccine pass to children as young as five. Fully vaccinated people must use the pass to enter certain venues, such as restaurants, gyms, and shopping malls. Professor Kwan told RTHK that it was important to push for young children to be fully vaccinated, as as the fifth COVID wave had seen a large number of children hospitalized with COVID and related illnesses. At the present moment, the fifth wave of the Omicron is upsurging, and in hospital, we are seeing more and more cases of the COVID-19, especially in children. I mentioned before in multiple media channels that we are seeing many cases of, for example, the coups and also the febrile commotions and also some unfortunate cases of the encephalitis in children. So I really consider that children need to get their COVID vaccine doses quickly, especially to have the full doses of the vaccine to have the escape protections.
The government has welcomed Hong Kong again, being ranked as the world's freest economy by the Canadian think tank, the Fraser Institute, in its Economic Freedom of the World Annual Report. Hong Kong has gained its top rank since its inception. The Institute ranks economies in five main areas, size of government, legal system and property rights, sound money, freedom to trade internationally, and regulations. The SAR again topped the freedom to trade and regulation categories. Singapore was ranked second and the U.S. seventh. Of the 165 jurisdictions measured, Venezuela came last. The U.S. Justice Department has said it will appeal against a federal judge's decision to appoint an independent official to review records seized by the FBI from former President Donald Trump's Florida home. Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, had ruled on Monday that an independent legal official known as a special master be appointed to decide whether the seized documents were covered by attorney-client or executive privilege. The Justice Department said that halting their probe would result in irreparable harm. Commenting through his media platforms, Truth Social, Donald Trump wrote that things were safer in Central Park than in the hands of Justice Department officials. And that's the news from RTHK. Today is September 9th, and we will be looking at the government's proposal to make it a legal requirement for child care professionals to report suspected abuse when the victim is at risk of serious harm. The proposed legislation would cover people such as social workers, teachers, doctors, and nurses. They will be compelled to notify the authorities within a reasonable period if they suspect a child is a victim of serious abuse. They can also do so anonymously. And if the cases are thought to be less serious, they would only be encouraged to report them. But foster parents, domestic helpers, home-based child carers, and private tutors will not be covered by the proposed legislation. Do you think this strikes the right balance in protecting children without placing undue legal liability on child care professionals or even exposing them to retaliation? After 9.15, we'll look at how Chinese medicine can be used to treat people suffering from long COVID. All right, the time is now to share your questions, comments, and opinions on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us at 2338-8266. And today, uh, kicking off today's show, we welcome Ms. Priscilla Loy, who's a member of the Commission on Children in Hong Kong. Good morning, Ms. Loy. Good morning. Good morning. We also have with us Professor Lam Ching Man, who is the president of the Hong Kong Social Workers Association. Good morning, Professor Lam. Good morning. Professor Lam, we're going to kick off with you. Uh, how are your members uh, of this, the Hong Kong Social Workers Association, how are they reacting to the new legislation? Are they for it? Are they against it? Are they for it but have concerns? What's the mood of the, your people? Yeah, as far as I know, most of the social workers, they support this proposal because uh, we recognize the good intent of this proposal behind and also seeing that lots of children are uh, being harmed. And so we think that this is a good proposal with good intent, so we support. But as you say, we have some concerns. I think the concern is more about the implementation details and other support to form a complete set and also the training and also about the manpower and resources implication. So I think the concern is more about the implementation rather than disagree with the proposal. Okay, and were your were social workers not required 
to report child abuse before? I think that might come as a shock to a lot of people. Yeah, they are required to uh, report, but it's not man- man- mandatory. Wow, okay. Yeah, usually we will report. We, we, we notify the case and we have uh, and, and, and children with potential risk and we will report. We already have a mechanism to handle the cases, but it's not mandatory. Okay. Now it will come voluntary to man- man- mandatory. Right, and, and is the concern that if you make it mandatory, then it, it, it becomes uh, something uh, that social workers could be exposed to legal liability, that, that it could actually create more problems for them? Is that the concern? Yes, uh, I think that's, the, that's their worry, because now the uh, details are not quite clear. And the definition about the green, gray, amber, amber red is, uh, is uh, although they, they have already listed list about this, but it's still not quite clear. So they, their worries about that is if they, that's their malpractice, I think it's okay. But if that's because of some unclear definition or some um, other reason that they have the legal responsibility, I think that that's their major concern. Yeah, definitions are, I, I like to say that, you know, mm-hmm. most most problems come down to definitions at some point. Uh, Ms. Priscilla Loy uh, with the Commission on Children, did the Commission on Children have input into this law and the definitions we're talking about? Well, this particular um, proposal has been tabled for discussion in the Commission. But being a member of the Commission, um, we have to abide to certain um, privacy or confidential restrictive kind of measures. So I will not be able to talk about it um, uh, as such. But as a personal um, advocate, child advocate, I do have views on it. Um, I I think this is an important uh, discussion, an important proposal, which um, which should say that it's long overdue. And we should all be well aware of the harm done to our children if we do not take appropriate measures early enough. In fact, it's early enough. It's not at a serious stage only. Uh, At a serious stage, I think it would be difficult to bring um, any kind of rehabilitation, counseling, or support service in. It's not impossible, but it would be difficult. And sometimes the situation has deteriorated into an uncontrollable circumstances that the children have been harmed for a long time. So I would say it's important for us to bring situations in, cases and children in, uh, refer them to relevant parties early enough. And as you rightly pointed out, I think in the past few decades, there has been uh, handling procedures, um, administrative measures and requirements, reminders, and various kinds of training. But those have not been, um, I would say, um, fundamentally effective in certain ways. Because we realize more and more, I think the community has to confront the issue, that there are more and more serious and even fatal cases of children under 18, particularly the very young. In the past, we thought that our very young had been well taken care of. We, we have received the best medical care and so on and so forth. But then even the two months old or newborn ones, we realized more often we found these cases of children badly injured in tragic situation of death. So, and also in reviewing those cases, 
quite a number of times that there have been professionals around, like kindergarten teachers, uh, residential center workers, even social workers and medical care and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that they are failing completely. I just want to reflect that there may be difficulties or hazards or, or certain reasons that cases have not been brought up early enough for treatment, uh, for handling. So I think the urge for um, overseas, many countries overseas, uh, I have seen 70 um, um, being numbered as having mandatory reporting of child abuse and, and not only serious child abuse. So I would like to see after years of advocacy and the work and devotion from both the voluntary sector and the government that we need really to do better. A more proactive action needs to be put in uh, to ensure the best interests of our children. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Now, Miss uh, Miss Liu, I mean, like uh, what Professor Lam was saying earlier, um, there are still many definitions of this uh, in this proposal that needs to be clarified. But I guess uh, you, what we what's the most important thing is uh, is that uh, children are protected and uh, they can be uh, prevented from any uh, possible abuse. And looking at the details we already have, uh, the proposed legislation it covers people such as social workers, teachers, doctors, and nurses, but um, other 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 uh, people such as domestic helpers and private tutors, they will not be covered. Do, do you think this uh, proposed legislation is broad enough? I mean, when, when we look at uh, domestic helpers and private tutors, they, they are also people that uh, are, are closely, I mean, I mean, they can uh, closely observe a, a child. Yes, I think the message to the entire community uh, is that we, we all have some kind of a, a duty and responsibility um, to ensure the children around us or, or even the citizens around us are safe and sound. But, but how far do we go to ensure this particular notion? Um, I, I think to start with those professionals who work closely with children and who have received certain degrees of training and education, I think it's a good start. It's an important start. But through these decades, I think NGOs, non-official NGOs, advocates, and even the government has been doing a lot of prevention work as well. But these, uh, uh, this prevention work, I wouldn't call it as useless or not worthy, because I can also observe that our communities' um, value and attitude of normal citizens have been changing. And I've been citing some examples, like the recent um, uh, child residential care um, tragic incidents. And it was really the public, the neighbor of the center who observed, who witnessed certain episodes, and she didn't hold on or, or just neglect it, but she has taken the action to report the circumstances to necessary parties and making the whole thing known to us, to the entire community. So I would say it's the community collaboration, but in particular, the professionals who are in the forefront are really have really to do more. In, and to learn more, to reflect what we have not been doing well. And I, I think it's an important way of improving our uh, safety net in order to ensure children are better taken care. So Hong Kong will have a firmer base in the future uh, to shelter and, and to support the entire society to, to move forward, I would say. Yeah, g given how rarely we, we review legislation like this, uh, 
presumably we want to get this one right. Professor Lam, for the Hong Kong social workers, uh, what specific changes are you going to make uh, in terms of changing the proposed the law as it stands? I mean, we're in a consultation period. Uh, what changes would you like to see specifically? Uh, as mentioned earlier, because our concern is, is we totally support the proposal and appreciate that the government has put forward something because for child uh, neglect, child abuse, we are tolerant and as a profession, we have responsibility to protect the children. And so uh, our concern is more about the implementation details because we would like to have a more comprehensive consideration before putting into implementation. So what are the other supports to form a consent? That's what we want to do more on this aspect. And the other thing is that, because of, I just mentioned earlier, uh, because the, the definition of the concept, we still need to further work on it and make it more clear. Otherwise, with the misunderstanding, there may be misuse and the good intention may not be with us very satisfactory itself. And also my concern is about the manpower and resources implications because uh, a seeing an example of other countries, uh, if it is not clear, there may be false alarm or lots of unsubstantiated cases. Mm -hmm. And then it will overload the system. If we overload the system, maybe other clients, other, other services may pay the price. So we, we need to have a more comprehensive uh, plan about this Right. It, it's very difficult to, to get the fine tuning, right? You know, if, if we say that we want the definitions to be more clear, uh, do we risk, as often happens in Hong Kong, do we risk creating very straight jacketed checklists that people uh, adhere to and, and leaving them with little room for discretion either way? Yeah, we can always make a balance. We can have the tools, but the tools is the tools. And finally, we need to have the professional judgment of, of uh, the the social workers, the doctors, and the nurse. So, so we need we need to have tools to um, help them to make a preliminary assessment or other training for them to put with the knowledge and also the sensitivity. I think it's more about the sensitivity of the the profession. And then we we, we try to arouse their concern and sensitivity. And then with some training, and then people will be more aware of the the whole thing. And also, as mentioned by Priscilla, it's not only the profession and community as a whole. I think together we need to have community education and the social awareness, and then we work together to implement the, the proposal. Do you, do you think that some of the people not covered by the legis this legislation, so we have foster parents, domestic helpers, home-based child carers, and private is not covered? Do you we go step by step, because for them, uh, sometimes we put the... Uh, uh, have to say they are not profession. If we right at the beginning, we have a work, we cover all the people, and maybe they 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 will have some anxiety and reaction. But I think training is it, and step by step, we we. I think the point is how to support them to make them aware that they they also have a responsibility. Maybe they they need to uh, report and discuss with their supervisor and discuss with the profession. And when they are aware of any initial symptoms, they should brought it up instead of um, just unsure whether to do it or not. No matter how small how the, the symptom is, they brought up for 
And uh, Professor Lam, I know you have to go soon. I just want to um, ask one more question. It's, I mean, how, how do you think this uh, proposed legislation will actually affect social workers' uh, work? I mean, um, a lot of uh, your work will depend on uh, trust with uh, your clients. Um, do you think they'll be more, like, less willing to, to speak to social workers? Yeah, I think that's one of the main concerns of social workers because um, some, uh, uh, we, we worry that uh, for those in the middle, I think the, 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 the red case, I, we have no problem. But, but the, those cases in the middle, they, they may have some personal problem or maybe family problem, but if they are in the borderline, borderline not really a child abuse case, but, but, but they may have hesitation to disclose that That is a tough one. I mean, I guess I guess this, these excluded classes, uh, they could, if they wanted, tell the social worker who then has a legal obligation to report mm-hmm. using their professional judgment. Is that right? Yes, yes. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah. Professor Lam Ching Man, uh, president of the Hong Kong Social Workers Association, we're just being respectful of your time, and thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, we're continuing on the show with Priscilla Loy who's a member of the Commission on the Children. After the news at 9 o'clock, we will have another member from the uh, Commission on the Children, a pediatrician, Dr. Patrick Ip, who, Priscilla, I guess you've probably met at the Commission meetings. Indeed, indeed. Indeed, okay. Um, So with with the Commission on Children, I mean, you know, do you think the Commission should be pushing harder to clarify these definitions? And if so, what do you you think the definitions should be? I mean, they talk about severe abuse. it's not a very right. fun thing to talk right. about, but this is yep. a serious yep. Before show. Before answering this, I would like to go back to, to, to two major areas you raised for Dr. Lam. And, mm. and one is that whether mandatory reporting will affect the um, client and worker relationship. Yeah. Uh, at, at, uh, in the beginning of this whole discussion overseas, I think it's in the 80s and 90s, uh, which have started my work and also... Um, being aware of what happened overseas. The discussion is exactly that. And whether uh, uh, some, some parents would hesitate more to step forward to ask for help, because by asking for help, exposing oneself, may brought him or her into more kind of work and sharing uh, uh, and, and passing to different organizations. So I think that is a reasonable concern that needs to be promptly addressed. But but the answer is actually how the service, if you're asking them to refer to a designated body, that body is very important in ensuring adequate service being promptly provided. And then the, the child being helped uh, rather than delayed in studying, in uh, understanding the situation. So it's the quality of the service that 
public and professionals. So I think at the present stage, we have all these experience from overseas, these strong ones, uh, the, the weaknesses and so on. We have to build on it in order to have a system that encourages reporting by actually practical kind of action being rendered. We have sufficient manpower, quality staff, passionate staff who are concerned and using hum humanity kind of approach instead of a punitive sense of approach. That's one thing I have to emphasize. And secondly, in terms of training, I think it's absolutely important. And several areas we need to bring in, which is multidisciplinary. In the past, I think various disciplines have been working hardly on their own. But the important thing is also look at other professionals' concern and consensus and difficulties or how they proceed, what are their concerns, in order to work together and in actual work circumstances to talk to each other. And secondly, I think in Hong Kong, we have many, many important, valuable cases already in hand, in file. But have we really studied them and used them to help and train our professionals to understand the circumstances? That would be the definition. That would be how to identify and what are the loopholes and how to fill those loopholes. And unless we share those with people in the forefront, people will be asking and asking numerous practical questions. And in fact, we have a, in Hong Kong, the, the government jointly with NGOs have worked out a voluminous handling procedure with different definitions, uh, w with different specific identification ways and so on and so forth. But those should be made practical for people in the forefront. And Ms. Yeah. Liu, you, you said uh, it's important to uh, encourage uh, people to make reports. Uh, is that uh, why this uh, whole process of reporting um, should be conf confidential? Uh, that, um, that is one area of concern as well. See, my, my personal, it's really my view only, and I think it's worth um, the government and the professionals and community to discuss. My concern, my, my suggestion is that the, the reporters, those report, should provide their identification to the designated parties, to the, the mandatory reporting receiving end, to, to the social welfare department and the police. They should provide their identification in order for cases to be further pursued uh, and clarification needed if it's needed. But I think their identification should be confidential. Uh, the, the designated parties should keep the identification confidential from those uh, being complained or um, alleged as abuses unless in absolutely necessary circumstances. I, I think to a certain extent, um, uh, uh, this may also be the case with the, um, with the police receiving reports, uh, uh, deciding how to respond and how to protect the identification of the callers. And by, by protecting the identification of callers, I, I think it's a very important area. So there will not be backfire or any um, um, uh, harmful kind of um, uh, consequences that would stop people from reporting. I think those would need to be seriously considered and work into the system to, to be able to encourage more people to step forward. So, Lloyd, we've got about a minute left. I'm going to ask you to answer an email. 
uh, from James. What a disgrace, he says, what a disgrace that child abuse can't be reported due to shame, embarrassment, or possibility that may be involved in legal proceedings. I have not seen any improvement over the past few decades. Given the pressure of life here, more of a furnace than ever before, what should we do? And here he has a question for you. I have a crazy neighbor who screams at her two children every day, vulgar comments regarding their genitalia in Cantonese. Others have told me not to get involved. What do I do? Should he call the number? And do you have that number? Or should he let it go? So the question is um, directed towards me? I guess so. He says, what do I do? Yes. Dial a certain number, and one of which is 27551122. It's an NGO. It's a non-governmental. And at the current moment, there's no statutory or mandatory reporting. But we are reporting on our good faith for the children. So dial some NGO's phone, telephone number, and at the other end, they will facilitate, they will help, and they will see whether they can send workers into the family in a friendly approach, non, not, not in an accusational approach, because some families, they have a lot of difficulties. Yeah. Just, um, and just need a little bit of help. to this one in the five-year-old. Yeah. So do seek help. Another is the commission. Please join us. In, in, in supporting a platform, particularly a statutory, a transparent, a sustainable platform, yep. uh, reflecting a child perspective and ensuring children's voice and children's matter thoroughly handled. That's Thank exactly you. what we need. Thank you very much for joining us today. Priscilla Loy, member of the Commission on Children, as we take you into the top of the hour, the weather is going to be fine and dry. Max temperature 33 degrees. It's right now 29 degrees Celsius, 49% humidity. Categories. Singapore was ranked second and the U.S. seventh. You're listening to the news on RTHK. But back chat with me and Janice. Me and Janice Wong here at Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work. Welcome back. And uh, we're talking today about the uh, serious issue of child abuse. Um, and we've got two new guests that are joining us at the top of the hour. I'd like to welcome Dr. Patrick Ipp, who's a pediatrician and member of the Commission on Children. Uh, Dr. Ipp, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We also have Carol Sito, who's the CEO for Save the Children Hong Kong. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Morning. Hi. Um, Dr. Ipp, you remember the Commission on Children, which I understand currently has this uh, proposed legislation in front of it for your consideration. What changes would you like to be? What changes would you like to see made in the in the legislation before it comes to LegCo? Uh, as everyone knows, uh, we have been facing a crisis of increasing number and also in the severity of those uh, vulnerable children suffering from different sorts of abuse in the past two or years. So uh, I think it's a tiny uh, moment to implement uh, more preventive measures in order to identify those vulnerable cases uh, subject to the risk of child maltreatment as early as possible. But now that, as you know, now the uh, target is mainly focusing on uh, improving the reporting system among the professionals looking after children. Some of them are medical professionals and some are social workers, and some of them may be probably uh, from the teachers and also among the educational professionals. So I think what will be more important is to give a more clear guideline. For example, 
uh, which team or what particular uh, person from the social work department that uh, our colleagues can report any suspected case to and have some more thorough discussion. Uh, in particular, uh, the training to the field uh, to increase the alertness about the appropriate uh, suspicion about the uh, different cases of potential child abuse would be more important. I think uh, many professionals are just having a little bit concerned uh, whether they would miss some cases of potential abuse and they just regarded them as a normal condition or not having the chance to evaluate a little bit clear before they are sure whether it's likely to be a, a suspected child abuse case or not. And then the reporting sometimes may not be timely or may not be too appropriate. Yeah, I mean, this question of timely, you say that people might want to take some time before they decide if it is really a case of child abuse. Uh, on, on one hand, I can appreciate that, uh, you know, that, that care to detail and, and not causing uh, unwanted trouble where there isn't abuse. But on the other hand, I mean, if there is abuse, you kind of want people to get on it immediately. Now, you know, for example, that when we are working in hospital, uh, those more severe uh, abuse cases, most of the time it's physical abuse, they actually would be reported maybe through social workers, uh, maybe sometimes even through police, bring into the hospital for a further evaluation. The evaluation, of course, would include the medical checkup. Uh, we would, uh, for example, if there's uh, many bruises in the different parts of the body, we would have a detailed examination whether there's any risk of uh, internal bleeding, fractures, or sometimes maybe even. But we need to do out the possibility of having bleeding tendency, like due to low platelet count or other reasons. So sometimes we thought uh, the finishing of the initial checkup and then the uh, evaluation, it may be a little bit difficult to con- uh, conclude whether it's definitely a case of child abuse or not. But I agree with you, uh, child abuse is a very tiny uh, and ongoing event. We need to act tiny and up in an appropriate moment. So that's why uh, I think uh, we need to act in two directions. Of course, uh, reporting uh, suspected cases in a timely manner in order to facilitate early identification would be a very effective means to protect our children. So uh, in general, uh, all of our professional actors support uh, this direction and also this policy. Uh, but at another goal, I think sometimes it would be even more important that uh, we need to have preventive measures to be a little bit earlier. For example, uh, actually we would need some policy to encourage positive parenting empowerment and positive training of the parents' handling of the emotions or the behavior of their children. And of course, uh, most important is having a comprehensive family-friendly approach to support the need of those families, particularly those single-parent families or those parents under stress or emotional stress. So I think the follow-up and also the, the, the actual support to the families would be equally important. Right. Dr. Ip, you, you said it's important to facilitate earlier identification of abuse cases, but uh, would you say quite often when the actual case reaches uh, doctors or nurses, it, it may be a bit too late? Uh, the, the, you may be right to a certain extent. Now, uh, as medical doctors, uh, in particular for us, we are working uh, in uh, teaching hospitals or working in those hospitals with tertiary facilities. As you know, most of those mild cases may not uh, turn up uh, in front of us. Now, usually uh, they may turn up in front of their teachers or sometimes uh, some case social workers, maybe those who have been in closer contact with them at the early moment. Now, when they present to hospitals, sometimes they have already got quite different uh, problems like uh, cannot walk properly because of injury to the no names. Sometimes there may be a joint swelling or sometimes even with fractures. Now, we have seen many cases uh, even presented with severe intracranial hemorrhage. For example, in those uh, babies with chicken baby syndrome. Now, 
obviously that's already too late. But then we, we still need to have tiny uh, action to evaluate whether there's any risk of abuse. And if there's, then we need to plan for uh, both surgically or medically to uh, treat the, the, the client first. And then sometimes we need to work together to plan for the rehabilitation of the after the recovery of the patient. But then, uh, well, what is uh, we propose, and as a medical field, we think uh, sometimes we need to think uh, on much of things much more earlier. So that's why I think uh, the legislation and also uh, improvement in the training of the professional in order to have high analysis to uh, identify those cases at more timely manner and in an early stage would be more important. And if uh, early identif- identification is uh, so important, uh, do you think uh, um, domestic helpers, home-based uh, child carers and private tutors should be should also be covered by the legislation? Ah, now, you know, this is a, a, a matter of uh, the consideration of the government uh, during the legislation procedure. Now, uh, in, in my interpretation, everyone who are looking after children, of course, should have the responsibility to ensure the safety of the children and also uh, to guarantee the well-being of our beloved children. But then uh, in terms of legislation, uh, what I heard earlier, because I'm not an expert uh, in legislation, uh, that they have some discussion about uh, whether other uh, people uh, involving in the looking after children should have the responsibility, uh, not just morally, but also act, uh, legally. So at this moment, I think it probably is uh, in terms of stage, it would be a little bit more easier at this stage uh, to first start with all those uh, professionals which are easily to be identified and under training. But in longer run, uh, not just talking about morally, I think in terms of protecting our children, we still need to think about whether those child carers should be the target that we need to cover in the future. Carol Sito, uh, Save the Children Hong Kong, Where, wh- what specific changes are you going to be recommending for this legislation? actually uh, they're pushing through this uh, mandatory reporting of the suspected child abuse cases. So, of course, for us, you know, uh, we always advocate that child protection is uh, and should be a top priority uh, for the government. Um, when we look at the, the paper, and we'll, you know, we're glad to see this public consultation uh, going on, one thing that caught our eyes is the type of suspected cases to be reported. Uh, right now in the draft and the proposal is that um, if uh, the people or the professionals have reasonable grounds to suspect that a child has suffered serious harm or as it is at an imminent risk of suffering serious harm, then you are uh, obliged to report. But if it's lesser, uh, you know, less severe cases, then uh, it's only optional. It's only recommended. Uh, for us, this is a point, you know, uh, uh, that uh, we want to comment on, uh, because you know any kind of abuse and violence on children should not be tolerated, and I think this needs to be a, a, a cultural change, and we need to send that signal. You know, if we only define seriously injured uh, as you know, um, actually in the paper they mentioned, of course, uh, serious injury or the child was hit in sensitive areas only, like the eyes, the head, the, the abdomen, the chest, um, then. Uh, that for us is not enough. Uh, any kind of injury should not be tolerated. Uh, uh, you recall very well, of course, last year there was such an uproar with the five-year-old uh, girl that was uh, uh, that you know died in, in 20, 2018 and the, the parents got the life sentence. Mm. Uh, she had one hundred and thirty-three injuries. Good lord. Um, 
uh, on that little girl. Um, so when do we stop? You know, is it 133 you should report? Is it 20 you should report? You know, how do you define the seriousness? You know, mm-hmm. why is it that it's only the abdomen and the eyes and the head that is serious enough that someone should report? And I think this is something that we should look at carefully because if we do want to send a signal uh, that you should not turn a blind eye, you should not look the other way. If we want to build a culture of zero tolerance of child abuse, uh, these matters should be defined uh, more clearly. I mean, they, when, you, when you give that description of the body parts, it sounds like the old, uh, the traditional feather duster across the back of the legs that probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with uh, from their childhood might would still be not required to be reported, I guess, would be a way of calling it. Is yeah, if I read the paper, and that's why I think uh, I welcome, you know, uh, them doing uh, uh, this public uh, consultation so we can define better. So just like you said, so if we see a kid that, you know, uh, and the little boy that died, you know, uh, over the weekend, um, uh, it says the news says multiple injuries. So, you know, what is multiple? Is it is it actually okay if we see multiple bruises on the arms and the legs? and and that is okay, and that should not be reported. I, I personally don't think so. So I, I think we really should send that signal. And we, as a society, every actor plays a role. And we should be vigilant in actually uh, 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 reporting any kind of sus- uh, suspected child abuse cases to the authorities so that the, the proper uh, personnel authorities can actually investigate and, and see whether something should be done and intervene earlier than later. Our earlier guest, um, Professor Lam Cheng Man, who's the uh, president of the Hong Kong Social Workers Association, uh, she expressed a concern about the, uh, the problem of false alarm and overloading the system. Would, would, I mean, do you share her concern then? I mean, right now you're suggesting we people should report uh, earlier. Yeah, uh, I, I do. I do see that uh, a concern as well. And Dr. Yip also mentioned earlier. The training is so important. Right now, this proposed law only applies to the, the professionals, so they are under certain uh, uh, regulation, and you have the means to train. And the consultation, the, the paper also mentioned the importance of training. I can foresee that, yes, if people are pro- not properly trained, and uh, it's important that you really have you know, reasonable evidence to, you know, to report something. So uh, that you... Uh, um, when it comes to implementing this bill, when it passes, that you know people should you know, know enough about you know how how to uh, uh, report whether something is legitimate or not, and it can be investigated. Uh, it, it could overburden the system, but I think the key is that training part. If the guidelines are clear and people understand, and uh, I think the the system can uh, accommodate that. Mm. Uh, one quick question, because I, I, I know we're, uh, we, we've got you guys until 9.15, but Dr. Patrick Ip, uh, we talked about proper training. Are medical doctors in Hong Kong trained to look for child abuse? Is this something they get as part of their formal medical training or during their continuing education later yeah. in their career? Or? Yeah, that's a good question. You, you know, for uh, all those pediatricians who are actually expect to look after our children, not just talking about those uh, in hospital, but also in the community. Actually, our, our training has uh, been a rather comprehensive curriculum, including the child protection elements. So okay. everyone of us needs to attend compulsory courses uh, involving rather details of to learn about assessment and also evaluation, particularly about uh, the importance of the long-term outcomes of all those child maltreatment. But okay. for those uh, general practitioners, uh, we have uh, a little bit touching on that in our undergraduate training. 
Okay, so you do get a little bit of that training. Um, I mean, that's yeah, that's very important. I mean, is it is it training not just to look for the physical signs of abuse, but is is it also to look for example for things like the uh, the the behaviors of an abuser? Now, I mean, both. That, you know, that's a good point because, uh, as you know, uh, child abuse in general we could categorize them into the different dimensions. Uh, what we are focusing more earlier is the physical child abuse, now, and of course, and also sexual child abuse is a very alarming situation. But for those uh, with uh, psychological abuse and also with child neglect, it would require uh, also the experience of the individual professionals to identify the need of the children, particular and the alteration in the normal behavior. Uh, that type of training we do have, but it's uh, a little more tricky. I think the experience and also the, uh, the more intensive training would still be necessary in the future. Okay, well, that, that's a very important subject uh, to finish the week off on. And I think in the first half of the show, we did get a phone number for an organization that people can call for cases of suspected abuse. Maybe we can put that on the Facebook page later. Uh, and, of course, it sounds like, it, you know, of course, we all have a role to play in ensuring the safety of our children and our community. So thank you very much to our guest for the second half, Dr. Patrick Ipp, a pediatrician and member of the Commission on Children, and also Carol Sito, who is the CEO of Save the Children Hong Kong. Uh, we're going to be continuing talking about Chinese medicine and long COVID, but we want to hear from you. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And on Backchat, we are continuing the show with Professor Bian Xiang, who is the director at Baptist University's Hong Kong Chinese Medical Clinical Study Center. Uh, good morning, Professor. Good morning. morning. Good morning. All right. Good. I'm glad we've got a a TCM expert on today. TCM, of course, short for traditional Chinese medicine. Or are you an MCM guy, a modern Chinese medicine guy? Yeah, it's both. We have the traditional and the modern. Okay, great. And, you know, it's been in the news lately that... uh, uh, the, the Chinese medicine uh, professional community has been developing uh, treatments to deal with long COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the long COVID is uh, really a, a serious uh, problem for the COVID patients, especially the patients uh, we suffer from uh, the, the COVID for a period and uh, then they're developing the long COVID symptoms. Um, the Chinese medicine uh, sectors has uh, developing some of the uh, treatment uh, programs for uh, long COVID patients. The Baptist University launched one um, uh, even provide care for long COVID rehabilitation programs, collaboration with uh, one of our uh, NGOs as uh, uh, links, which is uh, targeted on the elderly patients who suffer from the long COVID or the patient who has hospitalized and then recover from the, the COVID. That's okay. our, yeah. And I, I, what is the fundamental uh, what approach or view of Chinese medicine towards COVID? I mean, people talk about, uh, you know, the flow of qi and things like that. And obviously I'm not an expert, but what is the, what is the Chinese medicine view yeah, of COVID? Yeah, in? you're, you're mentioning about the qi, uh, which is uh, a commonly have that uh, qi deficiency syndromes in the long COVID, the patients. We have done a, a baseline uh, survey for among the, the previous, uh, means that before the fifth wave of the patients. The patients for the uh, long COVID, suffer from long COVID, more likely have the qi and yin deficiency, mm. which is uh, very common. Another one, uh, another uh, type of the uh, syndrome is, is uh, qi and the 
qi uh, deficiency with the stamp accumulation, we call it qi and shi, which is a very common, uh, another type of the syndromes. Okay. And, and what kind of treatments would you use to address those issues with the qi and the shi? Yeah. For the qi deficiency, normally uh, the patients uh, will suffer from some of uh, uh, shortness of the breath, and uh, it, especially some of the patients, they have a serious fatigue. Especially even they have the uh, rest but cannot recover very soon. Those are the very typical uh, symptoms the patient have. And the Chinese medicine treatment based on the, we call it Bianzhen uh, Lens, differentiation uh, treatment based on the differentiation of the symptoms or the syndromes. Uh, based on the differentiation of those uh, different type of the clinical symptoms, and then we come to a conclusion which type of the syndrome they are, and then based on the syndrome, we define the uh, treatment uh, uh, in type of the herbal medicine or uh, combined with the acupuncture, those of the treatment remedies. And uh, Professor Vian, I know the uh, Baptist University has just uh, launched a program to provide uh, free Chinese medicine consultations and treatment for elderly patients suffering from a long COVID. Um, why have you decided to launch this program now? The long COVID, you know, uh, the, the, in the community, long COVID uh, uh, patients are uh, becoming more and more. And also we target on those of the elderly patients who suffer from uh, those of the same patterns. The reason is because those of the long COVID uh, among the elderly or the long COVID among the patient who recover from the hospitalization, the symptoms among those group of patients are more serious than than those of the normal, elder, uh, normal uh, adult patients. And when you talk about elderly patients, are you talking about those aged uh, 60 or older? 65 or? over, yeah. All right. And uh, I know this uh, the service was launched earlier this week on Wednesday, I believe. Was it? Yeah. How yeah. popular yeah. has it been Not so far? Yesterday. And, and how popular has it been so far? Yeah, the patients is many patients register online, and uh, we're currently our our colleagues are working for those patients now. Um, there's uh, urgent needs, you know, in the community for those of the uh, long COVID patients because uh, many of the patients recover and uh, from the COVID, but based on the statistical survey epidemiology data from different countries, you can found in the UK data they found around. 57 of the patients who suffer from the COVID have the long COVID symptoms. Another of the survey from the uh, United States, uh, they found that around 49% of the patients, uh, they have the long COVID symptoms. So um, also, you know, we have some of the preliminary data in Hong Kong that quite a similar along 50% uh, of the patients suffer from the long COVID. So the needs the urgent needs for be there, uh, those of the patients recover even. Don't like uh, the common code, they, they recover very soon, but no uh, long symptoms. But the COVID is different. So those of the patients, like I mentioned before, like some of the patients, they have the shot of the brace. Some of the patients, they have suffering cough, insomnia, or depression. Those type of the symptoms significantly affect the patient's quality of life. Most of them, they cannot recover 
back to the work quickly. And in this program that uh, Baptist University has launched, um, does, it, does it just involve, uh, what kind of treatment does it involve? Is it just, uh, like, for example, does it involve uh, acupuncture or, or will it just uh, involve giving uh, Chinese medicine to these uh, elderly patients? Uh, our program is including uh, the four, t- uh, four times of the consultation, uh, including two times uh, face-to-face and other two times is uh, on- online based. Mm-hmm. We will prescribe the granules for the patients. The reason we decided for uh, four times uh, as, a base, as a basic treatment is because based on our previous experience with some, some uh, most of the patients, there uh, four times uh, treatment may be enough. But the, the practitioner, our, our doctors still have the flexibility to decide if the patients did not recover totally, they still can extend the program for another one, two or three weeks. They have the flexibility to do that. Of course, they still have some of the patients maybe not need the four weeks. So our uh, Chinese medicine doctors will decide that one. And for, with the program, are you, are you doing just treatment or have you also established a clinical process whereby you, can, you are going to track patients, see what kind of symptoms they're exhibiting and which treatments work the best? Are you, is there, I mean, yeah. is your program collecting that data? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we also want to have some real-world study to assess whether the Chinese medicine uh, treatment can help them a lot. And also, we, you know, the real data, real-world data is, uh, will help us to evaluate the, as a whole those of the treatment effectiveness and whether they have some side effects for that one. Okay, and then once you have that data, I mean, I, presumably you'll be publishing the results in the Chinese medical journals? All right, and then and then yeah. do you, do you have plans to share and then train uh, Chinese medicine doctors in the rest of Hong Kong so you can spread this knowledge, or, or maybe even to other countries across Asia and the rest of the um, world? Of course, uh, definitely. Uh, the first layer is for our clinics and also for the, our communities in Hong Kong. We have uh, developed uh, uh, clinical practice guidelines uh, based on our previous experience. Also, absorbed the. Uh, Are there other clinics that are undertaking similar programs that you can share uh, in, information and, and uh, study protocols with right now? Yeah, we have some uh, protocols fixed uh, uh, protocols. We have the uh, we have the two parts. Uh, first one, we have the base uh, basic uh, uh, treatment, basic formulations for uh, that the doctor can use. We recommend it to them, but they still have the flexibility to modify that one. So we uh, currently we uh, put these systems in our clin- in our clinical net- networks that doctors can use at once, and also we have some of uh, the publications internally uh, that uh, the community can have uh, share with that one. Yeah. 
Okay. And are you currently the only clinic doing this in the world, or is there, are there any others that you are comparing notes with? Uh, I don't can, we don't can claim that we are only one, but uh, I believe that some of all the clinics, all the, uh, the, you know, in the mainland China, they have some of the programs for the rehabilitation too. Uh, they're not just including the herbal medicine, they also have some acupuncturist massages and qigong. They, they, have, they do have that ones too. Right, but they, they might not have the same level of clinical rigor that you are bringing to this program, correct? Uh, definitely, we are rigorous one. Okay, very good. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Um, if uh, This is Professor uh, Bian Chaoxiang, who is the director of the Baptist University's Hong Kong Chinese Medical Clinical Studies Center, and you can look them up and maybe try to book an appointment. Uh, there we go, and this is your back chat for Friday. All right, I'm Andrew. We're closing out back chat with Janice Wong. We want to say thanks so much to you for listening, calling, and getting in touch with us online. Today's show is produced by Yuki Tong, and our sound man today is Ming. Make sure you tune in Tuesday for more back chat. We'll have Jim Gould and Ada Wong uh, here for you. There's no back chat on Monday because it's a public holiday. I hope you enjoy your long weekend, which is going to be fine and dry. It's going to be very hot today with a maximum temperature of 33, but your long weekend will have sunny periods and a few showers for the Mid-Autumn Festival. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius. Humidity is 51%. And this has been Backchat. I'm Dr. Siu Kao pediatric respirologist. The best protection for kids aged six months or above against the surging pandemic is arranging for them to get COVID-19 jabs. Catching COVID-19 isn't like having a cold or flu. A severe case like encephalitis may lead to intensive care or even death. Vaccination can reduce severe cases in pregnant women, who can then pass antibodies to the fetus. Newborns can also get the antibodies through breastfeeding from vaccinated mothers. Time is now 9.30, and now the news with Andrew Chorosky. Thank you, Andrew. Tributes have been pouring in after Britain's longest-serving monarch, Queen Elizabeth, died at the age of 96. She had reigned for 70 years.